before I had this guest on, I went to rate my professor and I typed in her name. Five out of five stars, which is rare for this site because it's a site where people bash their professors. So I Googled her some more and here are some things that her students have said to her. She's the best teacher I've ever had. Laura's passion for the subject matter is infectious. And this little gem, I learned so much about why people act the way they do. Laura, have you always been interested in learning why people act the way they do? I think that's something I got interested um, in in college. Um, I took a course on interpersonal communications and I was stunned that there is a science that can explain like, why do people behave the way they do? They do, And I got really interested in that topic. What was it about that topic that made you so interested? So at the time I was um, working on sustainability and environmental justice kind of issues. And I um, was having this experience of feeling like these issues are really important. Um, and at the same time, uh, meeting a lot of resistance and myself being dismissed as biased quite a bit um, and people wouldn't listen to me. Um, and it's around that time that I uh, took this class and I took another class on persuasion. And I was like, oh, wow, there are people in the world who uh, actually study what makes someone more or less effective. And I was like, you know, I think I might want to be one of those people. Uh, and that's kind of uh, the story. So you had this cause and you were trying to persuade people into doing something and you were bump. what were you bumping into? People were sort of pushing back because they say, of course, you're going to feel that way because you're like these types of people. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's like a number of different sort of resistance responses that people have, but one is that um, for the issue of climate change is that people who believe climate change is real and is happening, uh, people tend, some people view those folks as biased, as um, having an overly uh, concerned view of climate change. That was especially true in, back in the day in like 2012, it may be less true now. Yeah, it's because they sort of have a vested interest in believing in this topic so deeply that they can't see it from another perspective? Yeah, um, sort of the tree hugger mentality is, is like a way people are often dismissed or granola, sort of the idea that like um, your love for trees or your love for animals um, is biasing your view of how serious these issues are. And when you were bumping into this, were you super frustrated because you believe so passionately about it? And was that working against you in a sense, because you felt so strongly about it that people were sort of picking, it had the almost like, it sounds like the opposite effect. Yeah, I think that's, um, so I think that's a really interesting thing that happens is like when people are personally invested in issues like I was, um, that is a case where they're perceived as biased and um, people often do kind of, probably what I was doing, if I recall correctly, which is sort of double down, increase the extent to which I was expressing certainty in my views and expressing um, there's really only one side to this issue. Um, and um, those, those things are actually not very helpful for reducing perceptions of bias. 
I've had this happen to me as well. I will argue a point and it seems like the more I argue it, the more people dig their heels in and it backfires. What, what is the cause of that? I mean, there's lots of different causes. This is like a really exciting thing about studying people is that um, there can be lots of reasons that people kind of um, dig their heels in. And one thing, I, this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, so I, I apologize if it is. One thing that's interesting is there's research suggesting that when we have um, those those conversations where it seems like we're, people are just digging their heels in, our perception is that often that we haven't persuaded people, but there is research suggesting that we actually have. Interesting. How would you know that? Um, if you, so there are some studies looking at um, people's perceptions that they've persuaded others. There's also research looking at people's perceptions that they've been persuaded. Um, and and in those studies, they compare it to people's actual attitude change. So people also report like, what do you think of this before and after? And their attitudes have changed, even though other people think that they haven't convinced them and, other, and they perceive that they themselves have not changed. Interesting. So although you think you're, you might not be making any headway, in fact, you are, it's just not manifested itself in that moment, but it might later downstream. Yeah. And it doesn't always feel like it. Doesn't always feel like it. Yeah. So we, we bump into this problem as salespeople all the time. You were talking about your passion for climate change. Salespeople have such a passion for the products that they sell. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk to any salesperson, they love love, love, love the product. And they tell people things like this. Um, this is the best product. Um, I tell people I'm the best sales trainer, but people don't believe me, Laura, what's going on? Why don't people believe me? Why why can't it be that simple? What is going on? Yeah. Good question. Um, okay. So a core thing that's going on there, especially for, um, when people are selling products is it's, it's very obvious to message recipients or, or the person who's receiving the message, uh, that that person has a vested interest. So salespeople get something out of selling their products. Um, of course they do. And people are aware of that and that can make them seem biased. Um, it, it can also make them seem untrustworthy or, dishonest and those perceptions of bias and untrustworthiness can lead people to dismiss a message from uh, that person. Does it also have something to do with the negative experiences they've had with these types of salespeople? I mean, we think about the stereotypical used car salesman. We think about the telemarketer that calls at six o'clock and the new salesperson that calls, are they sort of grouped in with, or, or they're one of these people? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I think there's sort of a stereotype of what people who sell things are like, um, and it's pretty negative. It's that it's like you're saying, it's that used car salesman. And of course, like all stereotypes, that's not necessarily the case. There are lots of um, people who sell things that they really love and um, think that like, you know, I'm doing this because I want other people to experience this wonderful product. Um, and at the same time, people have that stereotype salesperson, this person just is in it for the money. Um, and so that 
kind of negative stereotype um, contributes to these perceptions of bias and untrustworthiness. Yeah, there was a there was a table in one of your research papers uh, that said dislikability um, in one of your papers that you wrote called uh, lay conception of source likability, trustworthiness, and expertise. By the way, guys, I'm reading research papers, which you know is way out of my <laughs> comfort zone. And there's statistics in there, which is even more out of my comfort zone. Um, I don't understand the t- statistics, but there were some words that were used in this dislikability column. And they're also the same words that when you ask people to write down the word that comes to mind when they think of salesperson, they overlap tremendously, like manipulative, pushy, forceful. I mean, these were words that describe our profession. So I was, it was pretty amazing that in this likability category, do you think it also has to do with how salespeople sound? Um, oftentimes when I'll get a cold call from someone or a sales pitch, it's like that hypey sales voice and, and it sort of feeds into it. Is there something to, to the deliverability or tonality as well? That's a great question. So I haven't done research on that specifically, so I'm going to speculate here. Um, but my sense is, uh, you know, when we, when we are in communication with others, part of what we're sensitive to is, is this person being authentic with me? Are they telling me the truth? Um, and when people use those hypey sales voices, it probably makes people uh, say, you know, I don't think this person, this person just doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem like they're um, really telling me what they they think the truth is. You make a great point. One of the things I loved about some of the themes that I was gleaning from your research is this idea of, of trust. You know, in sales, we talk about this a lot. Really, there can't be any sale without any trust. And we are, as a profession, not trusted. Um, mm. We have a tendency, and myself included, I've done this as well. We'll I call it lead with numbers. We'll say something like 88%, 100% ROI, 7x this, 7x that. And I would imagine from a bias perspective, do people know like this salesperson is cherry picking the stats? Like, I don't believe anything mm. this person is saying. Can Do you think stats, even though these are well-intentioned salespeople, lifting them from case studies, but considering the source, which you write a lot about, is, is it like, are we shooting ourselves in the foot here by leading with what we think is like, oh, we're 2Xing things. Of course, they're going to want it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um I mean, I'm not sure about comparing like stats to no stats, but my sense is it might be helpful. The stats actually might be helpful in the sense that you're trying, um, you know, what you're talking about when you say trust is trying to establish a sense of credibility. And the stats may not help with um, trustworthiness, but I think they probably help with the perception that you're an expert, um, that you really know your product um, and how it compares to other products, and that will help you seem more credible. Interesting. Tell, tell us a little bit about the difference between that um, credibility and trustworthiness, because I think sometimes people can get those a little confused. Yeah, we. So it, it is. It's a super confusing issue because we um, use these terms kind of interchangeably sometimes. Um, but my research has actually shown that people. Um, reliably use them differently. So when I say credibility, I just mean like the overall believability. Uh, So like, how much are you going to believe what this person says? Is it credible? Is it believable? And there are different components that go into believing somebody, thinking they're credible. And one is trustworthiness. And so when I say trustworthiness, I specifically mean 
uh, the perception that this person is being honest with me. So when mm -hmm. you're talking about those statistics, if I think you're trustworthy, I think that you are tr trying to convey the statistics as accurately as possible. Another thing that goes into credibility is expertise. So do you know what you're talking about? And that's where I was saying those statistics help because they probably make it seem like you're knowledgeable. And then what my work has focused on is that uh, being perceived as biased can also undermine credibility, even if you're perceived as highly trustworthy and highly expert. So when it comes to those statistics, you may have been trying to be as accurate as you possibly can, and yet your love for your product may have unintentionally led you to pick the statistics that were more favorable to your product, even though you were really trying to give me the most accurate perception or accurate statistics possible. It's because I have commission breath. Like to your point earlier, like I have a vested interest in getting the sale and therefore people know that. Um, yeah. Super, super interesting. So let's actually talk a little bit about what we might be able to do to ease this. Um, so one of the things you spoke about, which was I could relate to, my grandma thought I was an amazing guitar player. Now I can play maybe one chord, not really well, <laughs> literally. And she thought I was the greatest thing since Bach. Um, what is going on with my grandma and what can she teach us about bias? <laughs> yeah, so grandparents are my favorite example um, of, um, so, so because a vested interest can make people seem untrustworthy and biased, it's easy to think that trustworthiness, untrustworthiness and bias are the same things. Um, and that's been kind of a source of confusion. But actually, what the example of grandparents highlights is that there are people in the world who we think of as very honest and yet highly biased. So your grandma's love for you uh, led her to view you as the best guitar player in the world. And that, that was truth to her. So if she told somebody that, they're like, yep, grandma's honest. And at the same time, I think grandma's kind of biased. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm going to believe this. Right. And in, and in the sales percent, in the sales world, it's the opposite of that, right? It's like, you can be trustworthy, you can be credible, but because you're a salesperson and because this person maybe have had, had some bad run-ins with salespeople, maybe they've been burned before, maybe they've been sold something or made inflated promises, they're, they're biased toward you regardless. Yeah, uh, I think it, I think, well, I, I, I think there are ways to reduce being perceived as bias for sure, um, even, even when you're selling something. But I think um, to some extent, even if you convince your clients that you're a highly trustworthy person, um, they'll probably perceive you as biased to some extent. Um, yeah, so let's talk. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that because this is some ideas I wanted to run by you. And I'm so interested in your take on this. I've been waiting uh, six months to talk to you, honestly. People that are listening to this have been reaching out to Laura. She's been, she's been, she said, it's another salesperson reaching out to me. He's manipulative. He's slimy. No, she wasn't saying that. No, she, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Laura, so here's, here's, my, here's my hypothesis. So, oftentimes when salespeople talk to prospects, they only tell one side of the story. Let me explain to you why our product is the best for you. 
And they very rarely, if ever, talk about the whole picture. No, no product has all good things. Every product has pluses and minuses. So one of the thoughts that I had was instead of saying things like, our product is the best, coming at it more differently, which was, hey, this product isn't for everyone. Um, based mm. on what you told me, there's some drawbacks and there's some benefits. I'm going to be sort of the, the, the arbiter of this information so that you can make your own decision to see if it's right for you, which is very opposite of how most salespeople approach it, which is you need to, you know, based on what you told me, this is what you need. So I wanted to get your take on that approach. And if that can sort of reverse or can, you know, get over some of these biases that maybe people have, because it's me saying, hey, I don't want what's best for me. I want what's best for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think there's two things you're talking about um, that I think are key. One is um, expressing like, I have your interest in mind. I think that can combat that vested interest kind of thing. Although I haven't um, tested that hypothesis yet. What I have tested and I have some good evidence for is acknowledging some downsides of your product can be really effective in reducing perceived bias. So um, it seems counterintuitive to say, it can be a really good thing to say your product has some negatives, but that can make you seem less biased, um, which can make you more persuasive. Why is that? Why is talking about the negatives? Because I, I, a lot of people are listening to this saying, I would never in a thousand years mention anything negative about my product. And yet, Oddly enough, when we don't do that, we're shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, th I so I do think there's a caveat where I don't think you want to say like, you don't want a laundry list of negative things and hopefully there isn't one. Um, but when people are thinking, I think this person is biased when it comes to, to sales, they're thinking, I think this person can only see the positives of their product I think they're only going to tell me the positives of their product and they're going to either not um, acknowledge to themselves or to me that there are some downsides. Um, and if you instead acknowledge those downsides, it lets uh, the consumer know you've been uh, you've really given a 360 degree view of your product. You're trying to be objective. And I think um, it's related to what you're saying before. It also communicates this piece about like, I'm trying to have um, your best interests in mind as well. Yeah, I had an experience when I was working in Chicago. I was looking to rent an apartment and I found a place on Chestnut and Rush and an agent showed it to me. And he opened the door and he said, before I give you the tour and before you get too excited about this place, because I know it's in the area that you want to be in, I want to tell you a little bit about the AC unit. It's not central. It's a window unit. And you might think that's loud and you might think that it won't cool the apartment. So let me show that to you first so that you can decide. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting approach. And he did. And it turned it on and I was like, it's not so bad. And because he sort of brought up the negative first proactively, I would have probably discovered this on my own anyway. I mean, it was sitting in the middle of the apartment, but because he, because Richard brought it up, I instantly felt almost like a, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you could label it, but I felt a, almost like a bond, like instant trust almost. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like this is a person I can trust. And I didn't know him at all before him. What, what was going on there? 
it, I mean, it convinced you that you can believe what he's saying, right? The fact that he was acknowledging like there is this potential downside of the apartment and you're going to have to figure out if it'll work for you or not made you feel like he uh, was trying to be objective. He wasn't just trying to sell the apartment, uh, but that you could believe what he was going to say. Yeah. How, how much of this also goes to listening? Um, I don't know if you, are you familiar with the work of Chris Voss at all? Um, never. No. Conference. So Chris Voss is a, a former FBI hostage negotiator that I interviewed on the podcast. He frees people that are being held at gunpoint for money. And he has to use his words to persuade people to let them go. Wow. You know, so he's, and he's just using his words to be able to make people feel heard and understood. Can making people feel heard and understood and listening rather than talking at people mm-hmm. um, help with any of this bias that happens? Can people feel differently if they feel like, you know what, they're really trying to see my side? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I haven't done research specifically on that, but I've done research on something related which is you seem less biased if you give really strong reasons for your position. Um, And if you give kind of weak reasons, you seem really biased because it seems like there's some other factor that's motivating you to take this position because there's no, the reasons you've given aren't good. But to know what reasons are good, you kind of have to know your audience. So you have to know what does this person want out of this kind of product? Um, because if you, if I'm trying to sell you a bicycle and it's really important to you to have a lightweight bicycle because you have to carry it up stairs to get into your apartment, but I'm not sensitive to that. And I'm trying to give you something that's a bit heavier because it's gonna be faster in the long run or something like that. I might be giving you these arguments that you interpret as weak, uh, rather than giving you the strong arguments. And so, and thinking about listening, I would say it's really important. This idea of listening first is important in part because it will tell you what are the strong arguments for this person. I love that. And getting back to your climate change, I mean, if we could take a time machine back, I mean, would you have approached this differently? I mean, we get into this all the time with politics. I see people arguing and trying to change people's minds and not once have I ever tried to change someone's mind where they said to me, you know what, Josh, I never thought about it that way. I changed my mind. It just has never, ever happened. And yet, <laughs> and yet we try to keep doing it. So with regards to bias, when we're actually having a, a heated conversation with someone like in sales, it's, we call it objections. A, a prospect will raise an objection. You know, why should I choose you over everybody else? And then the salesperson will then vomit at them. I call it diarrhea of the mouth. Excuse me for being uh, crude. I know that word is not in any research paper that you've ever written. So <laughs> That's not proper, but but the idea there is they they sort of try to convince and change minds. And you know you've done a lot of work in persuasion and changing minds. What is it about changing minds that just is a net negative every time? Hmm. When you say net negative, you mean it feels bad or it doesn't work? It feels bad, and even if you win, you end up hurting someone's feelings in the process. And you very rarely will change someone's mind. They will. Uh, fight back even more. You know, I tell someone you know, we can go anywhere you want, but sushi. And they're like, mm. I want to go to sushi. Like people just don't, it seems like they don't like it when you try to take away their freedom or you try to change their mind or you try to overcome an objection. Let me, I, why you? Well, let me tell you why me. Yeah. You know, so what, is, what is going on there with, with people? 
Yeah, there's lots of different things, but in, in sort of a broad sense, um, there's research on something called reactants, which is um, refers to the, the, the idea that people want freedom, want to feel like they have the freedom to make their own choices. And if uh, they don't feel like they have that freedom, they will react against it. And so when people are pretty clearly trying to persuade you to take some position, it can make people feel like they don't have that control over their own uh, attitudes. If you're taking a different position than somebody else, it can also make them feel like they're not validated, like their view of the world, you're telling them their view of the world is wrong. We're, we're getting really deep here, not into just sales, but just communication in general, like just talking to people in general. I see this all the time where conversations are just not productive. Yeah. When you, when you have conversations, Laura, with people and you're sensing that someone has a different view than you with all of the knowledge that you have, do you, is your first step to catch yourself and say, Hey, rather than trying to change this person's mind, I want to first seek to understand them. And even if I don't agree with them, I can understand their point of view. And then once people feel heard, maybe they're going to be a little bit more open versus let me try to bulldoze over you. Is that what goes through your head when you get in these situations in your life? When I have the self-control and the, <laughs> the, the distance, yes. I mean, I think, I, I think the thing you're talking about is the right thing. And um, I'll, I'll acknowledge that it's really hard because um, a lot of the times a lot of times we feel like our position is right. And we, we wanna enlighten everyone else around us about the right position that we have. And even I study these things and I, I find that challenging at times, but like you're, like you're saying, um, this idea of like listening first is really important. Um, and, then, and then it goes back to this like acknowledging another side piece is even when you say your piece, um, to say like, I hear where you're coming from and I could see why you would think something like that. Here's my um, experience and how I'm thinking about this. Um, I'm not sure if that'll work for you or not, but that's how it works. That's how it works for me. Have we forgotten how to listen? I mean, I know you teach a lot of college students and is it, is it hard for people to listen because we've never been, I've never seen any course I certainly didn't take one in college on listening. I think it's a skill we take for granted a little bit. Like just go listen. Well, what do you, how do I even do that? What does that even mean? How do I, how do I listen in a way that makes someone feel really heard and understood? Cause it is therapeutic. I've been to a psychologist before and there's something therapeutic about when someone listens to you and it's so rare to be really heard. I have conversations with my friends all the time and I know they're checked out. Like I could just tell they're multitasking or they're doing something, you could, you could always sense it. Um, the, the lost art of listening, do you see that as well in your, in your professional and in your, in your um, business life? I mean, I do think like being listened to is a, is a way of being loved. It, it, makes, it makes you feel like validated. It makes you feel like um, you're, you're yourself and the feelings you have and your experiences are are valid and that someone else is open to them. And it, it is a huge gift that people can give to others um, to listen to them. 
What, what have you done, if anything? I know this isn't an area of yours, but I, I'm interested to hear your, just your perspective on it. What have you done to become a better listener? Because you strike me as a type, and I've again, I'm not a college professor, and I, but I've tried to read your work and get a sense of you. And you seem to me, in reading the reviews of the students, which I do understand, which to me is rare. I, I've gone on this, these Rate My Professor sites, and I've read what students are saying about their professors. The opposite of you, you seem to be a very caring and a person that listens. Are you, do you work on your listening skills or is just how you're wired? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, this is going to be cheesy, but I feel like I have to give the credit to my mom. I think my mom is a great listener. Um, and my dad is too, actually. They are both also exceptionally good um, question askers in conversation. Um, so I feel like I inherited a lot of that from them. Um, in my life, I'm trying to work it, work on being present generally, um, but that includes listening, um, especially to my close friends and my partner and trying, you know, when I'm having a conversation with them to really focus on what they're saying and being attentive to them rather than thinking about my to-do list or whatever else is running through my brain. But um, yeah, I, I think if I were to give advice, though, generally, my advice would be like, you know, try to see fundamentally, if you understand what the person's gonna is saying. And sometimes I try to do that in a way that will, I'll think about like, what is the question that I could ask? Um, that like, what, what are they saying? What question does this bring up for me? Not in, in a like interrogating kind of way, but just like, a, an understanding kind of way. Yeah, and then bringing this back to bias, I have seen when I do this in my professional career in sales, specifically around objections, when I don't try to overcome them, mm. and I just try to understand them, you know, so someone will say to me, you know, your your price is expensive. And instead of saying, let me tell you why I'm worth it, which doesn't work for the reasons you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, because of course, I'm going to say that I have a vested interest in it. Um, I would use, you know, what Chris Voss calls a mirror, I'd say too expensive with like a slight uptone. And what, what ends up happening when you say that as crazy as that sounds, that mirroring technique is they'll start to talk more. Um, and yeah. then I'll say something like, what is it about the price that's, you know, feeling, feeling a lot, mm. you know, and then I'll say, you know, look, you have a lot of different options. You can do A, B, and C. What would prompt you to want to bring in a former kindergarten teacher to train your salespeople? Mm. And, and, you know, you get people to give you their, their reasons. And I have found that that lowers resistance a little bit. Um, is there any, relation to this, this is what I'm interested to talk to you because I'm like, I'm doing this stuff, but I'm wondering if there's any relation between what I'm doing and your work. Because you have like studies and research and tables with something called M's and SD's. I have no idea what these things mean by the way. <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm curious if there's any like evidence behind some of this stuff. Yeah. So I'm doing a little bit of this work right now, but it's early stages. So I'll mostly talk about other people's work. Um, what you're talking about reminds me of research on self-persuasion. And so a lot of my work and the conversation we've been having is talking about when other people are trying to persuade you and how that can be more or less effective. One thing that's really, really effective is to get people to persuade themselves because they know what the strong arguments are for them. Like I was saying, you have to know what the strong arguments are for somebody. Everybody knows what the strong arguments are for themselves. 
And everybody, even when, if I'm listening to you try to persuade me of something, the thing that's going to affect my attitudes is the thoughts that I have in response to whatever you say. So if I'm just persuading myself, I'm, I'm directly the source. I'm generating those thoughts and they're likely to be strong reasons for me. Is this so, like motivational interviewing? Is it similar to that concept yeah. where you're trying to, that's kind of grounded in um, psychology, right? Um, Carl yeah. Rogers and these, these sort of people that are very into letting people discover their own reasons for change. Yep. I think it's very related to that um, motivational interviewing idea. So I like this idea of what you're talking about of like, can you, um, can you get other people to sort of reason, <laughs> reason with themselves about what the right thing is for them? And it's, you know, you brought up my students earlier. It's similar to what I'm trying to do with my students in the sense that the reason I care about teaching is I think that psychology is highly practical and people should be able to use it in their lives. And so when I'm teaching my students, I'm trying to get them to make the connection between the course material and their lives. And part of that is getting them to generate their own thoughts about it rather than just listen to me. And, and that's because I would imagine their reasons for applying it are more persuasive to them than you telling them your reasons. And yet, as salespeople, we do the opposite of that. And yep. I think it's people in general, that everyone just wants to share their take. Yep. It's definitely tempting to, um, yeah, share your take more than it is to listen. It's definitely, you know, we're, we're all attached to our beliefs. And so a, a tendency we have is to defend them and to try to, to show ourselves and others how correct we are um, when it's really that softening, that acknowledging of the other side, that the other thing, another thing my work has shown is expressing doubt can reduce perceptions of bias. So, by that? so doubt is, it's another term for uncertainty, but um, so I could give you two different kinds of messages. One would be like, I am very certain that my product is the very best on the market. Or I could say, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that my product is the best on the market. It's the same claim, but it's a different amount of certainty expressed. And often certainty, expressing certainty um, can make you more persuasive, but it comes with a cost, which is you're seen as biased. And, and the other thing is, my work has suggests that bi perceived bias can carry over to other topics. So if you're selling one thing, and I think you're biased based on what you tell me about that, and you try to sell me something else, I'll, I'll carry that perception of bias over. Wow. So it, it's long lasting. Yeah, it's highly consequential. So from a messaging span standpoint, if someone's doing a, a cold email rather or a, a presentation, it's not, let me tell you why our product is right for you. It's our product isn't right for everyone. Let me tell you the benefits and the drawbacks so that you can decide for yourself if this is something that you want to continue to learn a little bit about. And that yeah. whole energy is just so counter culture um, to how salespeople sell. I mean, you're used to going into a, I don't know, a car dealership because everyone knows these situations and the car salesman is telling you all the, or the call person is telling you all the reasons why the car is amazing versus the car salesperson that says, hey, you know, this, this car 
you know, it might not be right for you. Here's the things that you might like about it, but here's the things that some people don't like about it. I want to bring them to your attention because you have a family or you have this Y and Z and that person pulls you in more because they're telling yeah. your story. That's kind of what your research is suggesting. It sounds like. And if they're saying, what do you need? What are you looking for? That that's that softening too. Yeah. The, the hard sell is getting harder to sell. Yeah, it is. Is what it is. Let me ask you, as we start to wrap up here, um, you do a lot of lectures, you do a lot of talks, you teach amazing classes that I wish I could attend because the ratings are so high. What is your favorite thing to talk about that really gets you like excited? And I know this area is big and biased, but is there like a certain lecture that you give that you're like, I love doing this lecture. Like, I love this. Like, is there a few that stand out? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, it's such a good question because it's hard for me to pick. Um, here, um, I- I'll pick. I'll pick one. Um, this is hard, but I think <laughs> fundamentally that you know a lot of my research is on perceived bias, but the overarching thing I'm interested in is how how can people improve their lives and how can people improve society. And something that's really um, important to both of those is believing that you can. And believing it, not just a little bit, but believing it really strongly. Um, and this idea that like you, you can get smarter or um, you can become a better guitar player, you could be a better grandparent, um, you, you can change society. Um, that belief protects people against setbacks. So when something goes wrong, if I if I think I can improve, it's not such a big deal. It allows people to work harder. It allows them to learn challenging things. And so one of my favorite things to teach is um, this, it's it's called having a growth mindset, but this, I, this belief. Carol, Carol Dweck's work? Carol Dweck's work. And I, I do work that builds on that work myself. Um, but teaching the growth mindset lecture is really fun. And a a related idea is research on self-affirmation, which is the idea that you can handle the hits in life, the defensiveness, if you affirm your important values, right? So if you, um, if you, you can write to yourself about like, you know, I think I'm a, I'm a good partner or, um, I'm a good friend or think I'm a good person for the volunteering I'm doing. And if you remind yourself of those things, it doesn't feel so bad when somebody doesn't want to buy your product or you fail a test or you're waiting for threatening um, health information. That idea that we have that ability to do that for ourselves, to make ourselves more open, I think is a really um, important thing I teach my students. Let me, let me ask you a couple more questions about this because this has happened to me and a lot of people that I work with where you get in this negative headspace and you know, maybe, maybe you got 10, 15, 20 rejections in one day and you're not seeing it in the course of a quarter. You're judging it on one day and you get in a negative headspace. You start to think the phone is a cactus and you, Mm. the way you behave, the way you think actually affects your behavior and you kind of crawl up into this little ball. And I see this all the time. 
is that because I'm actually changing how I am by just saying and believing and thinking these negative thoughts? Is that what's going on there? I mean, you are changing your ability to react for sure. Um, So I'm also in a profession where we have a lot of rejections um, that the hit rate for papers and grants and fellowships is really low. Um, But we have the ability to reframe those. So I, I like have this goal for myself of getting a certain number of rejections and (laughs) then because that means I tried, right? It's the effort um, that I'm celebrating rather than the outcome because um, that the outcomes in a lot of ways you don't have a lot of control of, there's a lot of luck involved, but you can always put yourself out there. And so for me, I'm often trying to reframe uh, submissions and rejections that uh, as a win, because that means I put myself out there. Have you always been that way or is that something you've learned? That is a learned thing for sure. Um, I went through, um, so when I was in graduate school, absolutely none of my papers were accepted while I was in graduate school, um, which is not a completely uncommon thing. Um, Peer review is, the peer review process is a really important part of science. That's how we um, make sure that what's in the literature is high quality science, but it also means that it takes a lot of time. Um, Sometimes you have to add another study, you have to rewrite a paper. It's really, it's a challenging process. And it was very tough for me for a long time because I was hitting up against um, rejection after rejection. And And I don't think it was because I was doing low quality work. That's just sort of the nature of of the work that we do is you put yourself out there a lot um, and and you'll get rejected a lot. And unlike making a cold call, which requires no prep and is over in three seconds, I don't know anything about what you do, but I'm reading these papers. This has to require a tremendous amount of work. I mean, you guys remember being in college, I'm looking, you can't see this on the podcast, but this is very information dense stuff. So I would imagine this takes you months to put forth and then you you pour your life into it and then you submit it and they say no. And then what do you do with that? Like, how do you deal with that? Because it's not like you can write 10 of these. It's, I mean, how do you bounce back from that? What have you learned about yourself and how did you rewire your brain? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it, it, it comes down to that like growth mindset, not reframing of like my task is to submit it's to put myself out there the rejections mean I'm trying um I think for me it was also a bit of saying like I'm not my work my value isn't my work and um I I still have worth even if (laughs) even if my paper gets rejected and um I I having some confidence in myself that I can make a contribution to the world, whether or not this paper gets into a journal. I mean, I think that ties so nicely into sales because when people make cold calls, they fear the rejection. And what it is, is really a fear of like low self-worth. They're attaching their worth to an intrinsic motivation, which is the meeting. And when they don't get the meeting, they feel less than, they feel that they're not worthy. And therefore they kind of go into this downward spiral. So I think it's really insightful to say that this call really doesn't have anything to do with your worth as a person. Um, right. You mentioned that you had built on the work of Carol Dweck 
which I am a huge fan of her work and love her material. What have you done to sort of evolve that or contribute to that field? Yeah, um, great question. So th- this is like brand new. Um, it's not out yet. It's un- it's it's under review. Um, I'm going to publish it. I, just send it to me. Freaking- <laughs> Come on with people. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's good because of um, Carol's work. Um, you know, there are all of these growth mindset interventions. It's a big task to encourage people to have a growth mindset. And in a lot of ways, you can think that of that as a persuasion situation. You're trying to sell people on the idea of having a growth mindset. And it's similar to um, getting people to act on an attitude. So someone might have a positive attitude, a positive opinion of your product. But as a as someone who studies attitudes and persuasion, there is lots of work showing that just because someone has a positive attitude doesn't mean they're going to buy it. And a key feature and understanding whether someone's going to buy the product, whether someone's going to act on their growth mindset, whether they're going to adopt a growth mindset is how certain they are. How How certain they are. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So certainty is just like, a belief that this is a valid uh, belief. Um, so for example, um, I'm gonna give you an attitudes example and then I'll explain growth mindsets. So imagine that you have um, two political candidates, you favor one of them. You can imagine two different people, they favor the same candidate, they favor them the same amount, but one person is like, I know this is the right candidate for me. I'm so certain of it. And this other person's like, I like this candidate, but I'm not totally sure. And sometimes that comes from a place of not having a lot of knowledge. And the same is true for growth mindsets, where if a growth mindset is the belief that your abilities are changeable, some people really strongly believe that. I'm one of those people who's like, yes, you can definitely grow your abilities. My partner also has a growth mindset, but is like, I'm not totally sure. Like, I think I can grow and improve. I have a growth mindset, but I'm just a little bit doubtful. And my research shows that it's only when you're really certain in your growth mindset that you're going to persist in the face of challenges. You might, um, you might be able to persist even when you get negative feedback. Um, and that's when you are also really resistant to messages that your abilities are fixed. So it's like a spectrum almost. It's like, like a, yes. on a scale. So in your, in your partner situation, what can you do to try to get that person further along the certainty scale without, again, this is really an interesting question because we have established that you can't convince or try to persuade because they know that you're this way. So what have you done in these situations where this person's a little interested and they'd want to do it, but they're not all in. They're like, yeah, I, I kind of buy into it, but you can tell by their energy. They're not like you are, which is like, yes, I love this work. Yeah. So I mean, I think it comes back to a lot of the things we've talked about, which is great. Um, so what, what's interesting is there are some growth mindset interventions that seem to work really, really well, 
and some that don't. And the ones that work really well include these features that are likely to increase certainty. And what they do is they um, tell people that their peers also have growth mindsets. So learning that other people think the same things that you do can make you more certain. The other is the self-persuasion piece. Um, so if I have to generate for myself, so I have my students do this when I teach, I say like, okay, what, what is a, a trait that you have that you have improved over time through effort? And by generating it themselves, they are having to think about how growth mindsets are true. So interesting. So by them just manifesting it and talking about these situations, they start to buy into it because they get, there's like an energy there almost. It's like, well, there was this situation where I was given up on snowboarding, but I kept at it and I started to have these breakthroughs and now I can snowboard pretty well. So you're kind of reminding them of situations that they had in their past. Yeah. Um, now, what about people that are on the opposite end of the spectrum? Um, yeah. You know, if there's not a lot of motivation, is our job to say, I, I'm of the belief, and I'd love to hear your take on this, you can't create motivation. You can only align with it. If there's somebody that's so far over where they're not open to this growth mindset, they're like, I just don't buy into it. Do we write these? Do we just say, okay? I mean, or do you still try to see if you can't move them a little further along? Or do you feel like I'm not here to change the world? Like, I'm sure you have some students that I would imagine when you do this exercise, you're like, I can't think of anything. I don't <laughs> I haven't had a, a student who told me they're completely stumped yet, but um, I believe it could happen. And there's certainly people, um, people and, and organizations actually that are highly fixed. Um, is That's what we call the opposite of gross. We call it a fixed mindset because you believe that your abilities are fixed. So again, to, to me, it comes down to certainty again, um, where you might not move them initially, but you can make them less certain that their mindset is fixed as a starting point. So learning that other people don't agree with them, that's gonna make them feel less certain. Um, I mean, there, are, yeah, there's lots of different things you can do to reduce certainty, but I, I do think <clears throat> persuasion isn't always about moving people's attitudes. Sometimes it's about moving um, these properties of their attitudes like certainty that make them uh, unlikely to change their attitudes um, and more likely to act on them. I love that. And, and uh, as we start to wrap up here, it's such a great correlation to sales because it sounds like it's a process. You know, and salespeople are all about, I need to close now. And it sounds like certainty when you start to first have a conversation with a prospect, they might not be certain. The problem might not be big and intense enough. The example that I always give is, I have a TV in my back bedroom. It's missing a pixel, but I rarely watch it. And when I do, I barely notice the pixel. And because I have limited resources, I'm not going to go buy a new TV. But if I've had a good interaction with you, when enough pixels go out, um, I'll probably think of you because you didn't come across as someone that has self-serving interest. You didn't kind of force the TV down my throat. Is it the same thing with certainty where you sort of make these little nudges, maybe you plant these little seeds and then maybe in time, people become more certain and then they think of you. Is that sort of where you're going with this? Yeah, exactly. So you can imagine, um, so certainty is also really important for getting people to buy things because 
I might like this car, but if I'm not certain that I like it, I'm probably not going to buy it. Um, and so if I come to you and I just like this car, excuse me, uh, if I come to you and I just like this car, I'm not certain I like this car, I'm probably not going to buy it from you. And so you might need to do some things to make me more certain that I like this car. You're not changing my belief. I like this car. You're changing how certain I am to get me to buy it. Every single salesperson listening to this is saying, Josh, ask her how I can make people more certain. <laughs> okay. Lots of things affect certainty. Um, like I said, that social consensus piece. So you, you see this in sales or um, public health campaigns, like, what are other people doing? Like, um, this is like a really common thing in, in environmentalism kind of stuff. So you'll get like 80% of people are, are using this more energy efficient light bulb. That kind of thing can affect certainty. Um, things like um, feeling powerful can make people feel more certain or generating their own thoughts can make people more certain. So that self-persuasion piece can be helpful, even if they're not trying to change their own mind, if they're elaborating on and thinking about uh, your product, that can make them more certain as well. Interesting. It's, it's so interesting speaking with you because it is the opposite of how most of us do it, which is we are in control. We are persuading. We are trying to change minds. We are trying to make people certain. And I don't think if I understand you correctly, people are wired that way. It seems like they're not really wired that way. I think the more people feel like you are per trying to persuade them, the less open to being persuaded they will be. Should I just quit my job, Laura? Should I just find another profession? Is it is it is it helpless for us, us salespeople? L listen, you have been absolutely phenomenal. I am so appreciative of the work that you're doing and so glad that I stumbled across you. And I just want to thank you sincerely for sharing your wisdom with our sales team. Oh, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. This was very fun. And Laura, if someone wants to learn more about your work, I don't know, do you have books? Do you have a documentary? Do you have movies? What's cooking up for you? What's next on the horizon for you? In addition to loving your cat, which we have seen if you're watching the video, what else is going on? What's next for you? What are you excited uh, about? Yeah, so I am, um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher right now at George Mason University. So I'm doing work right now on trying to um, address the political divide we have in our country. So keep an eye out um, for work related to that. Um, otherwise, you can look at my website, um, lauraewallace.com, um, and that will have papers that you can access, information about my teaching and things like that as well. What a phenomenal mission that is to bridge the political divide and I just, just three minutes on this, I'm just curious to hear your take on it because it's so polarizing. How do you have productive conversations with people that feel differently about views? Because the inclination I've seen, and I've been a part of this, is things get heated really quickly. Um, so I'm curious to know about your work that you're doing to like make it just more peaceful, even if you don't agree, just so things don't get crazy. Yeah. Like what is going, what, can you just talk a little bit about that? I'm just super curious about it. Yeah, I'm glad you're asking me about this because I, I think what this conversation is showing is like all we've covered so much ground, we've covered sales, growth mindsets, and now we're talking about the political divide. And to me, it's all um, it's all about communication and how do we have effective communication with one another. Um, so some um, 
some of the work that I'm doing has to do with um, people's sense that they don't belong either mm-hmm. in their political party or in the United States at all, um, that they don't like people who think differently than they do. And it makes them feel not just that they disagree with those people, but that this is not a place for them. Um, And so some of the work we're doing is trying to address that feeling. Um, But I do think we have to, when it comes to like having these conversations, it's a lot of the things we've talked about in terms of, it's not that helpful. People will react if, if they feel like you're trying to convince them. And what's actually better is if you can try to acknowledge their perspective to start with listening um, rather than come out of the gate trying to persuade. That said, it we also think we're not persuading others. And sometimes they think we haven't persuaded them, but in fact, we have. And so... Mm-hmm. I would also say that if there are issues that folks feel very passionately about and want to communicate with others about, you know, do those, do those pieces of, of acknowledging the other side of listening, but also it might feel like you're not making ground, but you actually probably are. Is there also something too, Laura, about like elevating the discussion around things that we can universally agree upon? So oftentimes I see people talking about these issues and how they're going to do it. Do I want to build a wall? Do I not want to build a wall? Rather than, of course, we we want to make sure that people that are in this country are contributing. Like, are these sort of these universal truths that we can actually all rally behind without getting into the minutia of how we're going to do stuff? Basically, I think a narrative that we have is that we're really divided and we don't agree on a lot and we have really different views of the world. And the empirical research suggests that is just not true. Um, That we actually have more in common than we think we do. And that we are very aligned in the values that we have. Um, And so I do think it's it's true. There's a political divide, but I also think it's less than we think it is. And is that is that because is the cause of that because what ends up happening is people start to get heated about how they're going to solve the problem rather than the higher level understanding of what we can both get alignment on? Is that why the t- conversations deteriorate so quickly? It's like, of course, we want peace. Of course, we don't want kids being snatched away from their moms. Of course, we want uh, families to be together. Like, we could all agree on that. But people get into these, they start to then go down into the how, and that's when things sort of get heated. Is that kind of the point you're making here? Yeah, I think it is the focus on the how rather than the why. Um, But also, I mean, I I do think there are, there are incentives for people in power to divide us and to make um, it seem like we are really different when we're not. Great point. Laura, I could talk to you forever, but I will let you go because your alarm is beeping, beeping, your cat is starving, things are going wrong. There's, there's people coming in the house. They want to do projects. Uh, your rent is due. I, I've been uh, very uh, selfish taking your time, but I want to thank you so much for, for being on this show. It's been delightful. This was great. And I hope you can <laughs> edit out my cat disruptions and my alarm. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for jumping on. Thank you. This is great.